Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Hello folks, welcome back. We're going to dive straight back into the second half of our conversation with Charlie Thomas. Um, I'm sure like us, you'd have been thrilled to hear those inside track stories from the making of that wonderful documentary. But today we've got something incredibly unique and incredibly special. Charlie is one of the few people we know to have succeeded where we completely failed, and that is to sit in a room with one Lawrence Cream. And Charlie very kindly is going to be sharing with us today some interview snippets that A, weren't heard in the documentary at all, and B, that we haven't heard either. So um, we're going to be responding live to these clips. And I have to say, Charlie, we can't wait. Well, I... I can't wait either, in a way, because I, I, I've been feeling like um, this is sort of gold dust that's been sitting in the vaults for much too long. I mean, it's almost 10 years, um, almost exactly 10 years, actually, since I did this with Lowell at his local golf club. Um, <laughs> we, we found a room in the golf club just around the corner from where he lives. Uh, he was fantastic. You know, we talked for over two hours. And to be honest, I could have gone on all day um, because mm. he was so fascinating. Um, so many great stories, such a, a live wire as well. Um, and it was the first interview I did for the documentary. And it just it got things off to such a great start. Um, I thought, we, you know, if nothing else, we can we can base the film around this because you know there was so much good material mm -hmm. but as it turned out um, everything else followed on from that but um, I was really grateful to Lol for giving up so much of his time and, and sharing so many great memories. Here, here, uh, We are seething with jealousy as well. Yeah I got lucky I think uh, because he doesn't like reflecting too much on the past. I mean mm. there are a few musicians mm. like that. Some love looking back. Lol's very much someone I think who likes to look forward to the next project. He's always thinking, "What what's next?" It's what what made him such a great artist. You know, it was always on to the next. Um, yes. So I think I just I got lucky. I caught him at a, a good time. Wonderful, wonderful. So um, what what have you got for us, Charlie? Okay, so this is Lol. I asked him about his childhood musical influences and he said there weren't really anyone in there wasn't anyone in his family that was musical um but in his dad they had a piano at home and his with his dad he said they had their own private les dawson <laughs> he had a very good ear and i think that's what i've inherited my father's ear he with his right hand he could pick out any tune you care to name in particular, he liked um, Summertime and Granada and songs like that. And he'd, the left hand, he'd seen pianists of his age vamp like this, <laughs> doing the chords and stuff. So he did that. He slung his hand across the bottom end of the keys. It didn't matter what notes he was hitting. So it was the perfect tune on the right hand and completely the wrong notes on the left hand. <laughs> it, was, it was great. So that was my musical inspiration. Wow. Well, Brilliant. actually, that runs pretty deep, doesn't it? Because we're talking about alternate bass notes 
and you know different harmonies in the left hand and the right hand he's he's, he's shrugging that off but i think that really was an influence from the sound look, of that look at consequences some of the yeah. some of the stuff yeah. that's going on in blint's tune for example wow yeah. it's amazing brilliant isn't it it's it's, it's lovely because um i mean i your, your listeners would be able to hear what he was see what he was doing there but with the no. left hand he's basically doing that thing that stride pianists do yeah you know like <laughs> yeah. um uh I'm trying to think of some examples but um it's that sort of trad jazz thing when you're going an octave down and up and down and up yeah when you when you fred atwell and that that bunch you know, that sort of thing maybe. yeah russ conway yeah maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> This is Lowell talking about um, the writing process with Kevin, how they how they worked together, um, and how it changed over the years. Well, it, our our writing modus operandi changed over the years. Um, at the beginning, um, it started. I always played an instrument. I either plonked on a piano or I strummed a guitar. And Kevin sat here, and we, and he would, he would, as I was playing, he would sing, and then if he felt something, he would sing off and go in a different direction. I'd try and find out, or he'd hear me plonking something on the piano and say, "I like that, I like that," and I'd try and stick with that. Uh, and and we both hacked out a top line, and usually, um, once we'd got an idea for either a chorus or even a verse. The work really began then, because then you're nailed to... You've got to find a structure that follows that. And the hard work of writing three more verses that scan the same and fit to those chords was quite hard work, but we, we enjoyed that. And we definitely took the same amount of interest in the words and the music. And even to the point um, we tried to be fairly experimental. I, I remember I went through a phase of... Uh, detuning the guitar and finding different ways of and the problem was I couldn't remember what I'd done really hopeless thank God for Graham because um, like a musical computer I'd Dean and I was written on a tuning of some sort and we sang it to the guys to Eric and, and Graham and uh, I then when it came time to record it I didn't have a clue what I'd, how I'd tuned the guitar but Graham knew exactly what I'd played in normal chord terms and told me what to, to play, you know. Um, brilliant having somebody like that around. Uh, essential, really. <laughs> because Kevin and I were amateurs, really. We, just, we weren't serious, you know, we weren't knowledgeable musicians. We just kind of used our instincts to try and hack out some music and enjoy ourselves. Um, later years, what happened was... Um, when we got used to the recording process and we had access to our own studio and our own equipment, what tended to happen was that you'd make, being a musician that liked to play instruments, you'd make backing tracks and then you'd try and sing over them and construct songs. So the lyric and the, the top line, if you like, would come afterwards a little bit. Uh, and um, I gradually lost interest in the lyric and I got more interested in, so with Godly and Cream, um, I was much more focused on the musical side, uh, like with L and stuff like that. 
yeah, brilliant. Fa- fascinating. And you can totally see them in that tiny studio in, in Leatherhead, can't you, doing Ismism, where, where Lowell's kind of beavering away with his synth and his drum machine. And Kevin's doing a, a Peter Gabriel, uh, writing the lyrics in a after the event in a different room. So that is fascinating. Yeah. And I, I also found it interesting the way he talks about um, Graham being so important. Like, like, you know, he had just this extraordinary wealth of chords mm-hmm. um, in, in, his, in his mind. I mean, I think, you know, you, you read books about Graham even going back to, you know, his early days in The Mockingbirds and, and The Whirlwinds. And it seemed even then he had an extraordinary knowledge of, of chords. So, you know, invaluable, really. Absolutely. We very recently spoken to Henry Priestman on this very subject, and he says he's, he's sitting there in absolute awe of, of Graham, much like Lowell was on that clip. And uh, Henry is so kind of intimidated by Graham's genius with chords that he's kind of miming on his guitar as he's playing along because he, he he didn't put a foot wrong because the chords are so rich I got class, I got style But once in a while I'm the town I must go You better watch out your zone Watch out your stone bonehead woman Watch out you boneheaded man Right, this next one is lol on Eric's role in the studio um, uh-huh. I asked him, you know, was he de facto producer you know what what was his view on eric's importance mm. it was well to me but it's on reflection the role of the producer is if you like the adult the person that makes sure the way trevor horn explains it is the producer is the guy at the end of the day whose responsibility is to turn up with a professionally sounding, beautifully made record, mixed, and all the noises are correct, that's what a producer's responsibility is. Well, it certainly wasn't me and Kevin's responsibility, or Graham's, really. We were, me, me and him were the flakes, basically. And, um, and, and Kevin, uh, me and Kevin, and, and Graham and Eric were the adults, but Eric was even more adult, because he was the engineer, and he was responsible for the mix. So even though we felt like we were all producing in the sense of all coming up with the ideas and the notions and the, the attitude and, you know, the, the writing of the songs together and the performing. We did all that together. But really, if, if you're honest, it was because of Eric's, you know, um, experience and his focus on a, a finished record that they sounded and were finished the way they were. So that really, to me, puts him just at the top of the pile a bit in terms of the producing department. Really, he was technically, he was the producer. Fascinating. It's interesting how Lowell is, is quite self-deprecating, isn't he? He's, he's, he's mm. often saying, you know, me and Kevin, we, we were just amateurs. We're just the kids. <laughs> we were flakes just messing about. They were the, yeah. they were the true professionals. It's interesting the way he thinks like that. Yeah, and we've, um, Paul and I have always talked about 10cc being four producers um, but that kind of puts a different spin on it uh, we've always known that Eric was very much in charge of the knobs but that takes it to another level doesn't it Paul what Lol's just said mm. it's absolutely fascinating yeah 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 brilliant insights yeah 
I wonder if they had had a George Martin, had, would it have worked? I, I mean, it, it would have been probably superfluous because uh, they, they knew what they wanted, didn't they? Mm. It would have. However, it may have uh, prolonged the, the time of the band because, you know, the downside of Eric being the producer was that there was a, eventually a kind of a wedge, perhaps, you know, between, the, between him and the other three in that he was, as Lowell just said, the adult in the room. So he was the one kind of making decisions. Uh, mm. And maybe over time that, that didn't work too well for the band. And, and, and an yeah. outsider, uh, although, as you say, they didn't actually need one musically, could maybe have, have added to the longevity of the band. That's true. Know. That's very, very true. true. And there, there's also something else as well, and we kind of half alluded to it before, who was it who was talking to Eric after the meeting in Manchester? I can't remember. Steve Rourke. That's right. Maybe there was an already an, an unspoken awareness within the four members of, of 10CC, including Eric, that he was the de facto cash cow of the band. If the fact that his songs were already becoming the most commercial. He was the, the pin-up and he was the preferred lead singer. Maybe there was just some ego or some jealousy. Do you know where, where I'm coming from? Mm. No, yeah. I've never, I've never heard any of them talk of this. But I just wonder if it was, if it was there as an elephant in and the room. I, I think you could probably draw a, a comparison with Paul McCartney's role towards the end of the Beatles, because he right. was becoming almost the de facto producer for them. Because George Martin, after the White Album had kind of washed his hands of them. He's like, I don't want to be involved with you guys anymore. It's just painful. So Paul yeah. kind of had to step into that role reluctantly because, mm. yes. you know, he's he's having to deal with issues that it would be much better if an outsider like George Martin deals with it because if you've got mm. someone within the band dealing with that, the other three are going to be like, well, who are you to tell us? You know? <laughs> but that... That was different, though, because Lennon was kind of stymied and Harrison was kind of doer and unresponsive, maybe for other reasons, whereas there was no lack of ideas or creativity coming from the other three it, um, in 10CC. Oh, um, there may be a parallel, but it was sort of... McCartney was cajoling them, but Eric wasn't having to cajole the other three. No, I, I from that point of view, sure, but I, I think that... The point I'm trying to make is that if you've got someone within the band who is mm -hmm. producing, I think it can lead to tensions. So this one is the writing of Wall Street Shuffle. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, Lowell actually contributed to this. Oh. Yeah, Graham told us the verse, or the start of the verse was his. Is that, is that what he's going to say now? Okay. I had this little sequence. Dun, 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 d
which I didn't know what it was for. But Kevin and I were going to start another song. It might have been... I don't know what other song it was, because we weren't doing One Night in Paris yet. That was the next time, wasn't it? And I, I seem to remember saying to Eric and Graham, they were due to start a song, and they didn't have much experience writing together yet. I remember saying, I've got this, if it's said of any use. Um, <laughs> see if you can make something of that and take it. And they did, and what, when they'd finished, it was the Wall Street Shuffle with this amazing chorus, do the Wall Street... And the verse was... Din, 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 din. You read a friend... I didn't have any of that. I didn't have anything over the top of it. I just had a, this little combination of chords. You got a tip, you follow it. Cool. How weird they didn't credit him. It Isn't that strange? Seem, it doesn't seem like them. No, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, the only other time I can think that sort of happened was with... There's a kind of confusion with I'm Mandy Flyme as to who contributed to that, because if you look at the... <laughs> yes, the the liner notes on the on the on the LP are wrong, aren't they? Well, it, it says is, is that right? It says Lol Cream. Um, yeah. Whereas in the Tenology box set, <clears throat> Kevin is credited, not mm. Lol. You know, again, that, that I think most of the time they were pretty, you know, genuine yeah. and, and accurate as, as to who wrote what. But it's it's odd that you know you think that Graham got co-credits. On some of the early songs with Kevin and Lowell, um, you know, mm. just for contributing a few lines here and there or doing a middle eight or something. So, you know, Lowell mm. definitely should have done there. Yeah. It was Kevin, not Lowell. I think that was on Mandy. I think that was just a, a typo. But certainly the, the PRS, because we checked this, the PRS mm. database is it's Kevin. Uh, and he actually came up with the lyric, just like a Rolling Stone. Uh, as well as the as well as the sort of note, his known contribution to the middle section, um, and I think Graham said something like, "Well, I, I don't know what it means, but it, it's a good. St- it's a starting point. It's a way into the song." So they, they he came up with the opening line as well. Ooh, yeah, the plot thickens. This is not an orchestra. The sound you are hearing is in fact a guitar. I asked Lowell about. The gizmo, um, and how it came to be, and what was the inspiration behind it, and um, turned out it was when he was a kid. He loved orchestras and Tchaikovsky, and kind of wanted his own orchestra. Okay, the gizmo, yeah. Uh, so the way I I, I, uh, I remember it was because you know my. At Christmas, my answer went, what do you want for Christmas? I always used to say, I, I want an orchestra, please. Um, <laughs> and my dad would laugh, you know. And uh, So, because I, I was so interested in the idea of arranging and doing string arrangements and having... And in fact, when Neanderthal Man, we got the opportunity to make an album, I, I, I asked whether I could do a couple of string arrangements for tracks on the album that Hot Legs did. And they brought in this guy that could write, and I suggested what I want to have. And I was so thrilled. I went round afterwards and picked up all the sheet music because these were the notes that I'd, you know, arranged to have written for the string parts. And so the synthesizer was coming out and the synthesizer 
was giving keyboard musicians the opportunity to make arrangements with long notes and you know stringy sort of noises but the guitar players had nothing and so it was going around in my mind would it be possible to invent something that would allow the it's a string instrument the guitar to allow something to bow the strings and that was the that was the driving idea behind the gizmo could we come up with something kevin and myself that would bow the strings of a guitar and uh, it resulted at some point in us making a prototype of this device the one thing i do remember was that i remember driving and we'd be breaking our heads over how to how to do it i think we'd already We'd already come up with the idea of a rotary plectrum, something a plectrum that instead of being plucked up and down, something that was going round, that would touch the string and vibrate the string. And we tried all kinds of crazy things, like electric toothbrush. I think Eric reminded me that we once came out of someone's bathroom with an electric toothbrush, saying this could work. <laughs> but I also remember going to, to Strawberry Studios one night and. Uh, we gaffer taped my guitar to the wall and we found a, an electric drill and a, and a rubber washer and we stuck the rubber washer on the end of the drill bit and Kevin gingerly approached my guitar <laughs> and I held the finger on the fingerboard and, and he approached it and started rubbing the, turned the drill on and it actually made a noise that was almost tolerable. It was pretty screechy, of course, and uh, but it was the theory was if something was going round and rubbing the string, it would bow the string. And then the next thing I remember, it maybe took a while, I might cut to months later, I remember driving home in my car and seeing almost, I saw the mechanical drawing, I saw this drawing of how you could press something down and when you pressed it down, it would start to turn round because when it came down, it touched something else that was already going round. <laughs> and by touching that, that would go round as well. You see what I mean? Yes. And I, I ran back to, to Kev and I said, I think I've, and we sort of sketched it out. And then we, we built a little prototype. We found these guys in Todmorden somewhere in the north of England there, that would actually make this extruded cog that would connect, because it was a cog, but an extruded cog that was going around all the time, and we stuck an electric motor to the end of this cog, and these little cogs going that way, that when they touched the extruded cog, because that was going around, it would force them to go around, and we had one button that would go around, so it was only a matter of having six go all along this extruded long cog would make, should in theory, every time you brought one of these buttons into contact with a long cog, they would all go around and bow the string of each of the strings. And, uh, and then we had to find the polystyrene and the polyurethane to make these the right consistency rotary plectrums. Again, we found somebody in the north of England to do that for us. And we eventually had the prototype. Oh, that, uh, is, that is audio porn. That warms my heart because Todmorden, you probably know this, Sean, at, at least, is, is I, an ex- I bought a st- I bought a stove for Todmorden. Well, it's it's the next village from Hebden Bridge. 
So yep. I'm going to try and work out whether that workshop still exists. Who knows? Maybe those guys, you know, are still around. Fantastic, yeah, that. Uh, uh, wonderful. One second. So you could say something like, excuse me, kind sir, but could you find a way of somehow recreating one of these <laughs> that doesn't disintegrate over time? This, these, yeah. these are really worn out. The Aaron in the States, the guy who, who founded Gizmotron Inc., if you like, um, yeah, he kindly sent me some of the new wheels charlie that uh, that don't wear out quite so quickly but they're still you know they're still an unreliable beast are, are, are people actually um buying these still now yes uh, but i don't think there are that many <clears throat> who who have or or still do i mean do you um, know any sort of contemporary musicians have used them on their albums well yes but not not well-known ones we've seen quite a few videos post on social media facebook and and YouTube of of musicians using it in the studio proudly, you know, but very, very little footage of any being used live. And Aaron is very excited about us actually having two gizmos on stage for our for our fifty CC gig. And and um, do do Kevin and Lowell get any anything from this? I think they sold their rights back I in, in, in I the eighties. I believe 80s. so. I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, which is uh. a shame. They get credit, I think, but not any royalties. But that that was was beautiful. You can hear the joy in Lowell's voice, can't you? The joy of discovery, um, and and he tells exactly the same story as Kevin does about the drill and the, and the bit of rubber on the end. Yeah, but, but I I'd never heard that bit about the you know the other brainwave about the. You know, I'll have to the, listen the, the to thing, it again because yeah, it, it, it was Paul and I are involved with trying to write some of of the component parts of consequences down, along with a good friend of ours, a, a very very talented writer called Paul Hamilton. Paul asked us to to try and write a piece on the gizmo, and I I had a couple of paragraphs <clears throat> to try and explain how the damn thing works. And Lowell was struggling to get the concept across as well. And I have been with the luxury of having a keyboard and being able to type it out. The concept of pressing a key, which, and here's the clever bit, when you press the key, the rubber wheel kind of bends down towards a rotating metal cylinder. Mm. And it's the metal cylinder that that is constantly rotating. The metal cylinder then engages with the wheel and the wheel starts to turn round. Mm. So that's what Lowell's talking about there. But it's an incredibly complex machine. It really is. It's complicated, it's fragile, it's a bit Heath Robinson, and things inside it bend so blooming easily. <laughs> so I've had to take it apart, you know, a dozen times. Right. I lo- but I love the damn thing. <laughs> I mean, is it quite hard to play? Yes. Yes, because it's, it's alien. It's half, half keyboard, half guitar. Your fingers don't quite know which, which string they're playing, but you get used to it. Um, and you get used to having to press certain keys harder because the wheels aren't quite aligned. So the A string, you'll be digging in um, you know, with all your might. Another string, uh, other, other keys, you'll be just almost tapping to get the same effect on another string. Some strings sound like angels singing, and other strings sound like the drill with a bit of rubber on the end, you know. If you put the bloody thing down for five minutes, when you pick it back up again, it will sound completely different. If you come along and, and see us, we, you must have a go, Charlie. Just have a go. On, <laughs> I'd on, love to, on, on yeah, because I do play the guitar. Most. 
Brilliant. I, I think you'll you'll love the the experience of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. The gizmo is not a gimmick. It gives the guitar player of any style, no matter what his role in a group, a vast new range of sounds from which to draw inspiration. Here is a piece of music featuring the gizmo played with a bottleneck. Okay, so this one is the the writing of One Night in Paris, which um, is significant, as you'll hear. Oh, wonderful. I had a piano in my house, in uh, my first house when I got married, uh, in Whitehall, uh, up in New Mills. I had a piano there, and so that allowed me to plonk things out at home, whereas I never used to have a piano. The piano was at the studio. Um, and I, I had this little piece of business, one, dun, 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 dun. Uh, and I think we started with the, uh, very possibly started with that hook, one night in Paris, uh, but we just had a, Kevin and I had a nightmare trying to write the rest of it. We sort of had an idea that this kind of, it was really Irma Laduce. That's what was the, the story, if you like, in the mind's eye. Because I'd, I mean, Kev, we loved these old Hollywood movies and Jack Lemmon and all that, and Billy Wilder and stuff like that. I mean, we were just hooked on that. Well, I certainly was. Uh, and we had the idea. It just took us, a, a, I think it was a, three weeks of trying to bang out that song. It was really tough. But we loved the, we loved the, it was like a hard labour of love. And uh, that's the way I remember it, a hard labour of love where we tried desperately to make this really good piece of music. And it was very long because we had this concept. And uh, thank God, you see, the balancing power of the two flakes and the, the two straights, if you like, Eric and Graham, <laughs> who said, you know, it's very good, but it's way too long, you know. And uh, they edited it and helped us make it neater and shorter and more, you know, succinct and improved it by miles, obviously. Um, so thanks to them, that became a, a piece that was tolerable as opposed to something that went on and on forever and ever, even though it's been ages. Oh, fabulous. He, he's so generous, isn't he? He yeah. really is. Yeah. And always, always self-deprecating. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. and a few things that are interesting to me about that. Um, the fact that that was the first time he'd had a piano at home. Yeah. Um, because I think you can see that from that point on, a lot of, there's a lot more compositions on piano um, yes. on yeah. 10cc albums and then Godney and Cream, whereas before, you know, Cheap Music and 10cc album, um, th there's, there's, there's less piano. A lot of the compositions are obviously done on guitar. And there's always been this thing about it being longer and then edited. Mm. And mm -hmm. Kevin says he doesn't remember that at all. And and he said, you know, well, where's the rest of it? If it was edited, it, you know, there must be a, a, a longer version of it. And my take on that is that I think it was edited before they came to record it. So in other mm -hmm. words, Kevin and Lowell played the whole thing through. Let's say it was 
20 minutes long and Graham and Eric sat there and said well yeah it's great but let's cut it down and then we'll record it you know mm. in, an, in an abbreviated concise form that's my that's my feeling of what happened yeah so, I, th I think you're probably right it would have something that long would have probably been on two separate tapes um, but I don't think there's ever been a second tape of, of One Night in Paris no, and of course they not only edited the length down, they took so much out, didn't they? It was recorded with more instruments initially, and then it was stripped right back. I would love uh, to have heard it with more instruments, actually. Well, wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't we all? And we do wonder whether, of course, you know, you know what they're like, Tens you see, they kind of cover their tracks, but just yeah. maybe those in instruments are still on the multi-track, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I know it'd be fascinating to hear because to me that is why for me how dare you is a is a is a nicer listen because texturally it, it is so multi-layered with with instruments whereas I sometimes find um, the original soundtrack a bit bare. Yes, uh, and and I think Paris is a harsh-sounding track. Uh, it's 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 EQ'd in an unusual way as well to make the the top bits really pinch through your eardrums. And just briefly, I, I, I agree 100%, Charlie. How dare you use the nicest sounding 10cc record? I think. I, I think it's one of the most beautiful albums ever made in terms of the sound. Yeah. May not yeah, have yeah, the it, best songs they ever did, but I, I just think it's a stunning sounding album. Okay, so this is talking about I'm Not In Love, but also their use of the, the Mellotron and the Mini Moog. Mm. When Strawberry first went into business, Strawberry Studios, their bread and butter was doing the tape for Mellotron. And we used to have those loops. The, 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 the orchestra, the Northern Dance Orchestra used to come in, someone would say, A. And the, the boys would play the A, and then they'd go A sharp, uh, and go on through the whole. And these loops were made, and they were made to a certain size and stored before being sent down to the Midlands to the Mellotron Company. And we nicked one of those, the use of one of those tapes on the Underthal Man. There's a an A or whatever it is loop that is used in a drone. And that's nicking one of those loops from the back room before they went out and sticking it on the uh, machine with the, you know, finagling a, a use of the, uh, with the round a, a, like a, a mic stand or something like that and round a tape recorder head and we, we, we cheated a bit and used that loop. And that had always stuck in my mind, the loop was a vibe. And I, I had this thought that it would be nice to do voices instead of strings. And uh, I'd suggested it, and I, I, and I think I, I said, because I loved the tune of I'm Not In Love and the first verse, I'm Not In Love, it was a cracker, I loved it. And so between us we decided to 
rejig that song, maybe make a few edits and changes in the structure of it, but also to use it as a guinea pig for this sound. Um, the other big thing was I had the first Moog synthesizer in the country, um, oh. the Mini Moog it was called, and I had it parked at my house. And I, I, I was looking for it, I had a book and I wrote down, I made noises and I, so to see what noises they could do, and I wrote them down with deaf names in my book, because it's hard to put names to, to sounds. Soldiers marching through the snow. And <laughs> 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 I'd hit on a sound which sounded like a bass drum. And it was so cosy in Strawberry's control room, things sounded so good in there. They had these great big speakers that I su suggested that if I brought the Moog in and found the bass drum sound, maybe Kev could use the bass drum sound, but in the control room where it sounded great. And Graham played the electric guitar as a guide, Eric also in the control rooms, and it was all lovely and cosy in there. And um, so the whole approach to the recording of I'm Not In Love was different from all of us going into the studio and playing like a band. Uh, but we had the song, and the song, it was inherently a wonderful song. So um, it, the second time we did it, that last time, doing the backing track with the electric piano instead of two, an, an electric guitar and a bass drum instead of two guitars, and Eric sang a guide vocal, which I, th I think, I, I might be wrong, but I think that, that guide vocal that he sang while playing the electric piano is the vocal we used on the master, which I thought was magical. I think he tried singing it again, but we went back to that vocal. He, he, he wouldn't remember better than me. But somehow it came together and, it, and as soon as we put those voices behind it, we knew we had something magical. Wow. They're insights I've never, ever heard before. Yeah, this Fabulous. is This is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Oh, good grief. And the, the story about the Mellotron loop. Yeah. How, how cheeky is that? <laughs> There's the tone generator, isn't there, on, on Neanderthal Man? The kind of sound. But well, I didn't... I'm going to have to re-listen to that. That is... Um, I was just that's amazing, though, because, you know, so many people think it is a Mellotron or some people think it's a Mellotron. Okay, it's not, but there is a lineage all the way back with that, yeah. little, that little link we've got now. That is Absolutely. really mind-blowing. Uh, Charlie, can I make you um, hopefully laugh? On. Uh, on, on this, this is something that I, I did in, in this very room a few days ago. Um, I hope this will tickle you. It absolutely is what Lowell is talking about with both the Neanderthal man trick of the tape loop. He mentions um, sending the tape loop around a mic stand. Yes. Yeah, and, and of course that's what they did with the, the, the I'm not in love vocal loops. But uh, I, had, I had my very first go at this in here uh, a couple of days ago. Enjoy. It's only short, it's 10 seconds, this video. <laughs> it's quite something, isn't it? Do you it? want to tell Charlie then how that's going to be used at the concert, <laughs> unless you already have? I no, I haven't. Um, so that's, that's the sound of 25 volunteers all singing G-sharp, right. which is one of the high notes... And that and another note beneath it. Um, I'm going to be banging those onto tape. 
Uh, hopefully we'll have something like 50 volunteers by the end of it. So 50 um, separate vocals bounce down onto tape. And then for those two notes and those two notes only, I'm going to create a physical tape loop. And then uh, I'm going to just slow the, the speed on the machine down to half speed yeah. uh, so that we get the uh, uh, yes. call and response. See so what it's I mean? literally, they're all standing there going, ah, oh, like that. That's it, yeah. yeah, for as long as they humanly can. Right, and, then yeah. I, and then I've Like the longest um, dentist session you've ever heard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and you can hear the people like me who smoke, you know, are, are really struggling to get more than five seconds out. Uh, but it's amazing. I've had some amazing vocals, some recorded in studios, some recorded on, on their phones or iPads. It's brilliant. And the overall effect is just incredible. And then... It's the first time I've ever tried to create a tape loop, but by Jove, it blooming works. It's amazing, isn't it? Because I, I think I'm right in saying um, the Beatles did that same thing with Tomorrow Never Knows. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with the same thing, going all the way around yeah. the studio, around the mic stands. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure Floyd did it on, uh, at least on Dark Side of the Moon. Right. I'm sure that's how they did it. We're, we're, and we're hoping to use this as a kind of hook for our concert in that there's going to be a guy on stage playing live a sub mix using a mixer you know just like the guys putting up different notes for different chords during i'm not in love but it's a wonderful idea for us it's a chance of experiencing that kind of very tangible uh the recreation of i'm not in love the fact that yes. it'll be the first time that the vocals have ever been performed live right that they're all there all all 15 vocal parts will be there on a 16-track, multi-track, multi-track machine. Mm-hmm. And, and our friend Rick, if, if he can make it, um, touch wood, he'll be physically just moving the faders up and down mm-hmm. live. Yes. Uh, which just gives it a, a really a ridiculous kind of authenticity well, yeah. and, and a jeopardy factor, you know. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because it's, it's yeah. a performance, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So this is Lowell um, talking about the making of How Dare You. Um, And his main memory of this is the writing of what for many people is the highlight of the album, Don't Hang Up. And I guess you could say that every album had a a kind of special Godly and Cream uh, moment somewhere in Hollywood on sheet music. Uh, in Nuita Paris, in on the original soundtrack, Fresh Air as well. Yeah, I guess. absolutely. And this was theirs on How Dare You. Um, and he had very specific memory of the the, the writing of it. Uh, Kevin and I decided to go to with our families. We went and we rented a house in in the south of France. It was great, fabulous, you know, uh, with a piano and uh, to write a song or two there. So just to mix it up and change it and maybe have a bit of a holiday about writing. <laughs> anyway, there was a piano. And I don't know if, if you know, but when, you, when you're writing some songs, you have to bang the same thing out over and over again to get what you want, to sing the song, song of it, to get the words right. You're playing it, I mean, repetitious. Talk about, it could drive you nuts, right? Well... <laughs> Two weeks into this writing, we were on this one song, Don't Hang Up. My wife is out in the garden, and she's out by the big, beautiful cypress trees. And on the other side of the cypress trees, she suddenly hears, 
enough piano. Oh, enough piano. <laughs> I just, oh, hello. She says, it's not you making that noise. Enough piano I can't take anymore. She says, oh, she's, my wife says, oh, I'm very sorry, but it's my husband. He's writing some songs, you know. She says, are they with the BBC? And I says, uh, yes, yes, they're with the BBC. And she says, oh, well, that's perfectly all right then. <laughs> so, we were writing Don't Hang Up, banging it out for weeks trying to get this thing to work. And it must have, the window was open, it was warm, you know. And we'd never even considered the neighbours, you know, it was terrible. So I remember that. <laughs> that great? Oh, that is absolutely uh, wonderful. I, lo- I love the fact that he's cast... I think it was the neighbour with the sort of the, the RC, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Really? Yeah, it was like it was Dudley Dudley RP. Moore playing his playing his own mother. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was the neighbour complaining about him yeah. just banging it out all the time. And his, <laughs> isn't that great? But um, I have to say that the the piano um, on that track, and in fact throughout How Dare You, I think is is so beautifully recorded. They really for the first time, I think, really nailed recording the piano much better than they had previously. Mm. Yes. Mm. That's interesting, yeah. The high-quality forerunner to, to consequences. Yeah, absolutely, because, again, the piano sounds great on that, I think. Oh, it's some of the best recorded and played piano of all time, isn't it? It is. Uh, didn't, you, didn't you tell us last week, Charlie, that uh, it, Lol only got a piano at home, you know, during... I can't remember when it was. It was, was, just, now. was, it it was do- just before the rec- uh, the the writing for the original soundtrack. That's um, it. That's it. Uh, yeah, and yeah. and I think pretty much the first fruit of that was one night in Paris. Um, yeah. So I think it really did change his his writing, just having yes. the, the access to a piano much more than he had previously. Love to have been a fly on the wall, uh, and and I wonder if if that one started life as a much longer piece. Yeah, because that one you kind of feel it's it's perfect, isn't it? it it's it's the way it's um, it, it doesn't overstay its welcome at all. It's it's just really concise. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And there's a, a clear beginning, a middle, and an end as well, which I, I really like. <laughs> The other one of the other highlights of that album um, is "I'm Andy Fly Me," um, which was obviously a Eric and Graham song, um, but it went through a similar kind of process to "I'm Not in Love," not technically, but with the contribution of the other two, as you'll hear. Yes, it goes in quite a different direction. Yes, through, it? it is. It was practically perfect, except it just seemed like a, as I remember it. I think we started that. I think the world is spinning like a ball. Da, 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 da. That part were, um, was, I think, Kevin and I were around offering our four pennyworth. Um, it just felt it was brilliant. I mean, we loved it. It was just that it inspired a couple of other thoughts. And the ethos was, as it still is today, with I work with whoever I work with, and I, I always try and incl- make it make a point of it. The ethos is if somebody else has got another idea which is good, you should grab it, and uh, regardless of whose idea it is. And if you come up with an idea that is not so good, 
it doesn't matter. You know, it's the idea, the thought is to try and offer something up. If it's not back because nobody likes it, nah, that's crap. It's fine. It's fine. It's the trying to come up with something that adds to it, to makes the process additive. Um, that's worthwhile because it only takes a word or a lick or a, a chord change, an inversion, you know, you know, which makes all the difference. I mean, I could strum a certain chords this way, but if Graham added his inversions, it, it adds these subliminal things that make you, the listener, stay involved because you're intrigued and interested. Uh, and that's kind of the way 10cc did work. It was when it was at its best, and it was at its best for all those four albums, you know, really, we all chucked in ideas, we chucked out ideas, we were fairly brutal with each other too, and said, nah, that's crap now, isn't it, that bit, let's get rid of that, let's write it better or keep it out. Um, we were very good at that with each other, and um, we were very helpful to each other, I think, and that's how, why that, those, those four albums were, were chock-a-block full of good ideas. Wow. Yeah. Well, we applaud after that because that is that that is one of the one of the most kind of uh, reflective uh, little pieces I've ever heard from Lowell. They really is you say he isn't looking back but he is there and he's actually analyzing it in a lot of coherent detail, isn't he? Yeah. And that's the that's the philosophy of, of 10cc in a nutshell, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant, Charlie. And it's and it's interesting also um that at the time there were one or two quotes that Lowell mm. hadn't been that keen on I'm Mandy Fly Me, which always baffled yeah, me. I was going to mention this. It yeah. always baffled me because it's, you know, it's one of their, their great pieces. Um, yeah. But now, um, as he said, it was practically perfect. He, he seems to have come round to the idea, actually, that it was pretty special. I think it, maybe at the time he was already looking ahead to mm. uh, what was to become consequences. He was becoming frustrated with whatever they were doing as a band mm. could have been anything really so that was the mindset mm. but i think now he, he looks back and he you know he's 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 aware that it it was actually pretty special yes absolutely i mean it, it is a monument pop classic isn't it that tune i'm fascinated i'm sitting here um loving what Lowell was saying but but almost frustrated that we didn't hear more specifics about his contribution to, to the production of the tune or the writing of the tune. Can we try and sort of do a fantasy reverse engineering here? We talked about this earlier, didn't we, about Kevin being acknowledged as the co-writer of the tune. Is that because Kevin came up with the, the idea for the middle eight, you know, in, in that sort of that very unusual 6-4 time with all the overdub guitars? You know, was that purely... Kevin's work. Uh, what was Lowell's contribution? I, I, did he come up with the idea? You know, the, the idea of the intro, for example. I, I kind of feel that Graham, in particular, was very good when he was given. How can I put this? Like a a project. So mm, a, gro a groovy idea. Yeah. So what we need here, Graham, is something that zaps you in the head and makes it takes the song in a different direction. I mean, I've talked to Harvey yeah. about this because he worked with him in the very early days. Um, and sometimes Harvey would say, you know what, maybe it needs something else in the middle of this song. And Graham worked mm. really well in that situation because he would, he would just say, OK, what can we come up with? So I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin just said it needs something in the middle 
but didn't really specify it. And then Graham and Eric went off and came up with this thing. You know, they were just, okay, what can we do? So they were kind of working to a brief, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yes. Yes. I think I've heard Graham give a bit of detail about the middle eight. I think that was on the not on our podcast. I think it was the Songstripper podcast with Phil Thornalley. And right. I, and I think he did claim the ownership of that original bit of the middle eight. And there I, you go. I think he went he went as far as to say that Eric came up with the idea of going to the relative minor. You know, it starts on B, I think, and goes to B minor. So mm-hmm. they kind of eked it out together. Mm-hmm. So, but, but I think you're dead right, Charlie, in that Kevin came up with the, the, the idea or the, the, that it needs a kick in the balls, or I think mm-hmm. he used a phrase like that, mm-hmm. a kick up the arse, whatever. As you said, much like he did in I'm Not In Love, actually. And then, yes, exactly. And then the specifics yeah. were down so, so to So Kevin the other comes thing. up with the concept... And then leaves yeah. it to them to fill in the concept. It's that kind of thing, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. Uh, I think, and, and Sean, talking about, you know, Lowell's contribution, I think you can almost sense Lowell's contribution by seeing what happened after they split. And you listen to, yep. let's say, Deceptive Benz. You can feel his absence yeah. really strongly there. You know, it's a perfectly good album but you you can you can somehow that that's how you can tell what lol's contributions were by listening mm. to it when he's not there if you see what i mean no no i'm with you there's almost almost a a complete lack of quirky off kilter musical content yeah. there, there are quirky moments on on deceptive bends and i think it's a great pop mm. album but you, but you're right. There's a certain depth of of quirkiness that's missing, and it's it's um, it's more conventional. Um, yes, whereas yeah, if yes. you, you you listen to the two solos uh, on "I'm Mad yeah. Fly Me," Lowell's is first. <laughs> it's just one of the most extraordinary guitar solos you'll ever hear. I mean, it, it's it's yes. just extraordinary. Eric's is brilliant. It's the second one, but it's it's but it but it's more conventional, it's more conventional. isn't it? Yeah. Um, that solo, um, you probably know this already, Charlie, uh, in, in another part, I think, I can't remember, I think this is the podcast with Gary Kemp. Uh, there have been some good um, information dropped recently. Um, I think Lowell said that that's, he sang that solo. He, didn't, yes. he, didn't, he wrote it in his head, if you like. Right. Then he transposed it onto the guitar. And Eric didn't like it, uh, which is also interesting. Um, so, ah. how yeah, could you not no, like that? I know. I know. I know. I'm Mandy is a really, really interesting song, and we—it's fascinating trying to reverse engineer it. We can't, of course, but it's—it's it's such a masterpiece. But it's a—it seems like there were a lot of tensions there. Yeah. Um, they still managed to pull together to make something brilliant, the four of them. But you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? That song. Mm. So Lowell wrote it in his head and then literally had to piece it to teach himself how to play it on the on the fretboard. Uh, I, I'm thinking, Paul, of our, our poor lead guitarist, Paul Roberts, in the 50cc band, who's had to try and learn those solos. Yeah. He's playing, bo- he's playing both of them, actually, and he's doing a grand job. And, but, and crikey, it took him ages, didn't it? And he okay. finds Eric's easier because Paul 
I suppose, like Eric, really is a blues player at yes. heart. Y- yeah. So he yeah, can get yeah. his fingers around that. But Lowell's is is a it, it's just kind of abstract, isn't it? But brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of almost like a randomly put together jigsaw <laughs> of notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it but it's unspeakably marvellous. It yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. What what next for us, Charlie? Okay, so as you can tell, we're sort of getting towards the end of the foursome. Uh, this is Lowell's reflections looking back now on the way that 10CC worked and he and Kevin in particular worked and how his sense of the way they worked um, has changed quite radically since then. I think we had... Um, these days there's a word for it, you know, where you have... Um, attention deficit syndrome, whatever they call it. I think, that particularly Kevin and myself, we very found it very hard to, to repeat ourselves, and was sort of almost pathologically frightened of creating our own cliches and um, being repetitive. And, and so every time we approached the writing of a song, we'd try it on a different instrument or a different tuning or had to be a completely different angle of rhythm or a lyrically it had to be a completely new idea. When we recorded, we we were the ones that were sort of pushing for a new way of doing it, do it in the control room. Instead of using that instrument, use this this sound. We were sort of always trying to make things different. And I think we did it to our detriment because I remember f- finding it hard to listen to our own music, thinking... Gosh, you know, if only that bit's good, why don't we do more of that bit, keep that going? And, w- and when, um, in the 70s, towards the end of the 70s, the disco beats arrived and these dance grooves, um, nothing could have been further from what we were doing. People would find a groove, stick with it, and really milk it and sing over the same kind of grooves, and it was great. And albums that you'd buy would have the same sort of noises. You had a a sort of flow of sound or a flow of atmosphere that was a whole album's worth. And I was jealous of that, in a way. <laughs> but there's just something about my ourselves and myself that couldn't do that. Mm. Oh. oh, wow. You you got him on the best day ever, didn't you, Charlie? That's really Seriously. brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. I know. And we, we've heard this talked about, haven't we, by many sources, including Graham, uh, who, who talks about... his. Wanting to get Kevin and Lowell by the neck and saying, "Oh, just do that bit again. It's so brilliant." Yeah, yeah, um, yeah pathologically incapable of doing it. How fascinating! Because it's funny, isn't it? When you listen to to Ismism, which I guess is the first of those albums that uses kind of repetitive grooves or raps, if you like, for want of a better word. I'm thinking of, of tracks like "The Room's Ready for Ralph," where it's almost that the, the polar opposite of their thinking on on previous work mm. where it's 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 repetition ad nauseum doesn't suit them um, it, it, it's, no, it, it, no. it's it's an absence of thought there they're just letting the machine take over and i don't think snack attack as another example has as much godly and cream or perhaps specifically cream in it as the earlier stuff and i missed mm-hmm. as soon as soon as ismism starts 
something very important is lost, I mm. think. That's where they lost me, actually. The room is ready for Ralph, Rose. The room is ready for Ralph. Come in, Ralph. Come in, Ralph. I'm still a fan of his the, the, the 10cc albums, uh, the four albums, there's so many, it's, they're so dense with ideas that you could, you could have actually made eight albums worth. You, you <laughs> oh, know, yeah. You know what I mean? There's so, <laughs> yes. many, so many song ideas in there um, that yeah. it, it's, that, I think that's why they repay uh, um, listening over and over again because there's so much in there, there's so much, they're so mm. dense. Um, and I think that's yes. why they were so original. You know, I, I, I think that's one of the great things about 10CC. They were so original. Um, very few bands like them. Comparatively few tunes across those four albums, aren't there? What, 40 odd or something? It mm. feels like a million. Mm. Uh, but, it, but it's not. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm also reminded of, uh, of a chat we had, Charlie, about Blint's tune, Side Six of Consequences. And Paul and I had and, and I guess still have a frustration that some of the wonderful themes from earlier in the album, that the really iconic themes that are so full of meaning because they they evoke the four elements, they evoke, um, the, you know, nature kind of ganging up on the world. Virtually none of those themes are revisited in Blint's tune. It's almost like that is, is, is like the perfect example of Lowell and Kevin wanting to produce a 15-minute piece that is purely new ideas and doesn't sit still for, for more than a minute. It, it, in many ways, it's like the archetypical old Kevin and Lowell style, yeah. isn't it? And they could have saved themselves a lot of, uh, of work, to be honest, because I yeah. don't think anyone would have begrudged them if they'd, you know, recapitulated a few ideas. I mean, after all, that's what the great classical composers do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. But, but it's against their nature. Yeah. Um, you, you say that Lowell's always working towards the future project. I think even even more than that, Lowell is very much in the moment, isn't he? Yeah, we then moved on to um, the videos. I knew in my documentary that I, we weren't going to be able to dwell very much on consequences. Um, mm. We talked about the, the gizmo, but that was as far as we could go. There just wasn't going to be time. Um, because really what Kevin and Lowell were famous for after the band was the videos. So we, yeah. we, we, talked, we talked at some length about them and how, how it started. I think it was Kev that says, you know, these promo clips, the BBC on Top of the Pops used to show promo clips, they were called, when a band in America the record company wouldn't pay for them to travel and play Europe, they would pay for a, a cheap little film, which they would send that. It's much cheaper than getting board and lodgings and flights for a group, is to send a film, a little promo film, the top of the pots people would play it if it was going on the chart, and they would play it in various European stations. And Kev came up, I think, with the notion, it'd be great if we could do our own promo film for, for something. And, we storyboarded the idea for this promo clip for Englishmen in New York. 
I've got an idea, Sean. If you can bear it, you should play a clip of Kevin saying, I'm sure, virtually word for word the same thing, yeah. and overlay uh, overlay the two things, <laughs> or cut between, do a mashup somehow, because <laughs> that that was clearly such a moment for them. Mm -hmm. Can we yeah. do Can we do that? That'd be interesting <laughs> if we can. So we resolved to make a little film to go with our track, which coincidentally was called for An Englishman in New, New York. York. It wasn't the Sting track; it was a right. different song. So we. Designed we a storyboard for a film without really knowing what we were doing, and we went to our record label and said, We want to make a film. And showed it to the record company people. And they said, Okay, <laughs> fools. Yeah. But we'll only let you do it if you work with a, a, a director who's done this before. A director, a union director, someone who's got a union ticket so that you can hire a studio, use a crew. Uh, which is exactly and that's what, what we, we did. did. And we found when we got into the studio and did this video, it was all going pretty well. The director we had was, you know, it was good, Derek. Um, but it was when we got in the edit suite. But that, that was an extraordinary moment. It, it all really came to life for us because here was, we were used to a music recording studio. And here was a control room in the edit suite that everything you could do for your ears in the recording studio at Strawberry, you could do for your eyes. We were just blown away by the process and the possibilities of doing it. What it actually did was it reconnected us with our art roots because before we got into music, we were art students. We were like many people of that era. We studied at art college. You know, you could change the colours, you could edit these pictures, you could turn it upside down, you could do this, that, and that. We were excited by the process that we were being shown and, and yeah. suddenly that, that visual side all came flooding back. It was like being in a recording studio but for your eyes. And we applied the same lack of rules to that as we did with everything that we've done so far. That was when we looked at each other and thought, hello, hello, we could have some fun here. So we were, we were living in an era where the lunatics were running the asylum. Uh, we had a go at playing that on Sunday. God, it was—it's hard. I that bet it is. That's, it's surprisingly hard. Have you, have you got have you got someone on on xylophone? No, I was playing a plastic xylophone um, during it, but I, I won't be doing right. it on the night. Right. Uh, we, we've got a proper keyboard player to do that, but it, <laughs> it'll sound—it'll the keyboards will sound great. Yeah. Oh, that was that—that that was so nice mm. and. And again, oh, to have been a fly on the wall during those editing sessions. Mm. Well, I, I, I spoke to um, Stuart Copeland, as you know, for, for the documentary. And again, mm. there was quite a bit that I couldn't use, but he, he said that um, whenever he used to be in town and he knew that Kevin and Lowell were editing, he would just make a beeline because it was like going into this cave where there was just this madness going on. And he said it was just hilarious. It was like being with the Marx Brothers or something. They were just so funny oh, wow. while they were yes. working um, and just trying out all these mad ideas. Um, you know, just nothing was off limits. Brilliant. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you can tell it, actually. I mean, much as I love the video for Englishman in New York, some of the video effects they use on it are really, really cheesy, mm. especially the... The, the text graphics that comes up on screen. Uh, it's like, you know, Channel 9 from The Fast Show. It's that kind of level <laughs> yeah. of primitive graphics. Yeah. So clearly they were just, I think they all, yeah, what does this button do? And then they were just sort of throwing in any old shit, really. Yeah. The video that l led on from that was for Visage. And yeah. it, it shows how little um, the record companies regarded videos at that time. The, the budget that Kevin and Lowell were given 
for that to make a video for Visage fade to grey was two grand, of which wow. of which twelve hundred went on the makeup artist. So they were left with eight hundred <laughs> quid for the rest of it. Wow. Incredible, isn't it? But I think, as, as Lowell said, I think their next commission was twelve grand or something, wasn't it? Yeah, because they suddenly realised, hang on a minute, these these actually do yeah. work. <laughs> I mentioned Stuart Copeland. Of course, they, they did several police videos, um, which really made them, put them on the map, including the, uh, the one for um, Every Breath You Take, which won several awards. Um, yeah. I think my favourite was uh, Wrapped Around Your Finger, which had them in slow-mo, um, mm. dancing around all those candles. It, it looked amazing. And um, Lol had some quite amusing memories of making that one. It was, it could have gone horribly wrong, right? Because the theory was, uh, theory was if, if he's, if we play him the track, if, if Sting mimes uh, a double time, but the camera is running at half, half, if we play back at half time, he'll come back in sync to the, the track if he's filmed at double speed and he's singing at double speed. Play back at half speed, he'll come back at half speed, which it should be in time. So the entire shoot was funny. All Sting ever heard all that day that we shot was. <laughs> and he sang mine to that. <laughs> and it, we didn't test it. You know, normally in movies, you test these things. You'd give them time and money to test the new technique. You'd spend weeks, I don't know, testing this, that, and the other. There was no time to test it. We just went for it. And, uh, and the other thing was the candles. There was 999 candles on that set. And <laughs> after each take, they had to be put out because we had all the... We managed to gather all the cathedral candles in the Los Angeles area. <laughs> so there was some guy, Ron, his name, Ron Voles. His job was to take one of those little cap things, those little metal caps, and... <laughs> run around the set and extinguish every one of those candles to save the candles. And, and then it had to light them all again for the next take, <laughs> after the next camera setup. Can you imagine? Um, that's ridiculous. That's brilliant. It's so godly and cream, isn't, isn't it? it? I, yeah. I think it, 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 you'd almost put out, you know, outtakes from the making of that would make a great little film, wouldn't oh. it? If this guy running oh, yeah. around trying to put them all out. <laughs> yeah. Madness. Another famous one they did, one of their greats, uh, was for Herbie Hancock, um, yeah. Rocket. With regards to Herbie, we got this call from his manager from LA who said that there was a real problem getting black guys on MTV because MTV arrived. It was it possible to come up with an idea for a video that was minimal in its use of Herbie and that somehow was so special that MTV couldn't fail resist playing it. And they sent us the track. And the track was great. It was track was really fresh. It was a scratching thing. And it was Kev, who I was away, and while I was away, Kevin had seen on TV this magazine 
arts programme and one of the segments was about this sculptor, Jim Whiting, who made these crazy, wonderful sculptures that were powered by compressed air. And they did all sorts of things. They moved and they... they were, and they were made of found objects from the scrap heap. And, uh, and one of his characteristic things was these legs that flew all over the place and, and all these other creatures. So we got a... Because we, we, through a connection to our production company, we got this copy of this magazine programme and saw this segment on Jim. So we decided to go and find Jim and meet him and see whether he would actually be interested in doing a video with us because the Herbie Hancock track was ideal for that sort of mechanical stuff that moved. So we go to the some outskirts of London and the address and it's this, well, <laughs> I hate to say slum, but <laughs> there was this sort of kind of shabby area and, and there was this door with, and we, it was a, we looked, rather than before we rang the bell, we sort of looked through the letterbox and we saw these <laughs> things hanging all the way up the staircase, sort of bits that <laughs> looked like dead people, but they were actually Jim's <laughs> artwork hanging up. And we went into this world of Jim's and um, he lived and loved all these characters that he built, you know, that were mad and crazily but wonderful. And he was all for it. He was completely for it. And he even said he would build some extra characters because we said, well, you know, the, the thought would be, really, maybe we could house all this in a sort of fake domestic situation. Hence, he built the baby and uh, uh, stuff, some other characters that were used that filled out the impression of a family in a, in a home. I think he already had the guy in the bed. <laughs> I think that was already there. Um, and, of course, we had the most wonderful time. But the, 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 um, it was a huge hit for Herbie. And we became friends and, you know, it was marvellous having that experience. But the, the funny end to that was that when Herbie was invited to do the Grammys, he asked Jim if he could bring some of these robots over to perform live on the stage and uh, and he did and Jimmy was very very sort of a scruffy guy normally and you know you know he's just a working artist you know covered in muck and all of he turned up at our offices apparently one day and with his you know the sparkly jacket and the shades and he insisted apparently on a first class ticket for him not just himself but for Veronica uh, yes, who was Veronica? Veronica was the robot Veronica. at the at the ta makeup table that on the end of an extended rubber thing with a big light for a head. That was Veronica, and he wanted Veronica <laughs> to travel by his side up front in the aeroplane to make it worth his while. And that's I think what happened. So I hear it, and uh, and Jim fulfilled one of his ambitions. He got to Hollywood. Uh, it was just a delightful experience. Everybody got to win on that one. <laughs> she doesn't look too well, Mister. <laughs> wow, that's a great one. Uh, you know that yet another podcast recent recently, Charlie. Don't know whether you heard this one. Kevin was uh, It was a really good one. Can't remember the name of the podcast. I'm afraid. Quite recent, and he was asked. Um, for his three greatest achievements, mm -hmm. Kevin was asked, 
and he said one world one voice project mm -hmm. his solo album and rocket uh, wow. and when pushed and when pushed his fourth was the debut 10cc album interesting good grief so that shows how highly kevin yeah thought of that of that i I, lo I love the image of the two of them peering through the letterbox before they went into yeah. his house <laughs> it's just a great, great it's on, on some dodgy estate somewhere <laughs> I, I think it's, it's marvelous and this jim character sounds fascinating mm. i'd love to you know see him interviewed or something he sounds mm. like a proper a blint character yeah. well, if, you know if I mean? he's still around maybe you should try and get him on um, i've been labeled various things you know, mad scientist, yeah. um, robot maker, and all sorts of things. But I think the one I like best is inventor. All the things I made, I made without planning them. So I start with what I want to do, but then I let that lead me on to whatever else I want to do until I end up with uh, the materials really giving me the ideas. More often than not, I end up making something which I'm sure is sure would be a, would give a, would have given Freud a field day. Well, uh, that would be so. That would be so funny. Of course, yeah. Uh, and Ver the Veronica thing. It reminds me. Do either of you read Viz? Yeah, not uh, recently. There's a character called Fruity Bun and his gingerbread sex dolls. <laughs> it just had that. that uh, <laughs> It had that kind of flavour to it, yeah. um, but just amazing. I love that video. It's great, isn't it? It's, uh, it's so weird and so humorous. But what a time, crikey, barely 40 years ago, or just over 40 years ago, and poor old Herbie can only appear in his own video uh, in, on, a, on, a fun, on a fuzzy TV I mean, screen. We're not, talking about, we're not talking about South Africa here, we're talking about America. No. And yet, yeah. no blacks on MTV. I mean, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? When you think that literally 99% of American pop and rock music is totally based on, on black music. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's, it's criminal. And it, and it wasn't until Michael Jackson's thriller that they were forced to have black people on MTV. I mean, until that point, yeah. they just yeah. they wouldn't do it. That's correct. Yes. Although Rocket kicked down a bit of the door. Yeah. Yeah. Using using the animatronic leg, one would hope. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> nicely done, Paul. Nicely done. So they became famous, Kevin and Love, for making videos for other artists. And it wasn't until Cry in the mid-80s that they actually did one that gave them a hit. And that was, of course, Cry. Well, the way I remember it, it came about because... I didn't really want to appear in front of the camera very much. Uh, and I, I think I said to Kev, would it be possible to get everybody else in the world to sing it for us, you know, and, uh, rather than us have to actually mime ourselves? It was, I used to hate getting, learning things and doing things for the, in front of the camera. Uh, it wouldn't be possible to get loads of other people to do it for us. And maybe, you know, I don't know, I don't know. And then he picked up on that. He said, do you know those amazing photographs that you see where they, they do studies, beautiful black and white, where you can see every pore in black and white? It could be cool if we, we, got, we did it photographically. We shot them in black and white, tight headshots. And then it all started to gel. And then we went to the... There's a, for casting, we, we used to use the ugly agency. And that didn't mean that their clients were all ugly, but it meant that they, they had people from all walks of life, usually as extras, 
and they specialised in people that, you know, characters from all walks of life that had all different shapes and faces. They went all beautiful and all. So we went to the ugly agency and asked them to provide a load of headshots of people. And that's who we used. And we got them all in a room and we got them with a, 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 a sort of teacher, coach, to teach them all, all the song. So they each, no, a half of the song for one lot, because it was too much to learn the words. And half of the, half of the song, back half of the song for the other bunch, and they all learnt the lyrics. Then we fixed a, a, a pan from an oven, a, a boiling pan from the kitchen, on a, over there, and so that the head, that was nailed to the back of a chair, and the heads fit into there, and they weren't to move their heads, it was held in place by the pan. And they had to mime their half of the song. And, uh, and then the idea was all done in the edit. And, and very often, ever since that day that we did our first video and we discovered the edit suite, it's significant. A big part of our videos, every single video, half the idea was the edit, the concept of the edit. It drove, the edit suite inspired the concepts. It wasn't just how we would film things or what people would look or like or do. We also had, when we went to, to shoot, we knew how we were going to edit it. The edit was part of the concept. More, never more so than in, this, in that video. Yeah, here, here, mm. here, here. And what an achievement that was. Um, but in many ways, and we, we spoke to Kevin about this, Charlie, mm-hmm. when we, we met with him, and we put it to him that a, a, a key sort of trope of Godly and Cream's videos was that everything seems to be shot in, in really quite a very small room and almost all of the action is actually quite static mm-hmm. in, in many examples. But you've always got this very tiny enclosed space. Yeah, it's true. And it strikes me that Cry is the ultimate mm. Kevin Lowell video because it's the smallest imaginable confined space. Um, contained, you know, with a nailed-on saucepan. <laughs> yeah, wonderfully Heath Robinson, isn't it? But, but yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, true. I, I hadn't thought of that, but it's it is true, isn't it? They they don't do great sort of swooping camera moves very often. No. Anyway, no. It, it is. It's very sort of claustrophobic. The, like um, a, they they create a microcosm, don't they, mm. for that in that that little world mm. that belongs only in that in that video. Yeah. It's often yeah one. POV, isn't it? One point of view. Do you remember the yes. Do you remember the video for Numb by U2, which is really good? Have you seen yes. that? Which is just, it's mainly the edge sitting in a chair. I think mm-hmm. the, the edge is kind of miming mm. the track. Well, I think, I think right. it actually sing, sings that song. And then the rest of U2 and other characters come in and somebody massages his face with a foot, you know. And, That's right. Um, and there's, there's another one. I mean, it's not so fated, but... Uh, Kevin, this would have been on his own, did the one of the comic relief videos. I think it was what the song was when the going gets tough. Might have been Boyzone. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, and yeah, I think he's in it. He's in it for a moment. He's in it playing well, the drums, yes, which was really yes. exciting. I, I was in a night. I was in a nightclub of all places, and it came oh, on. I dear. said, "Who the fuck is now? It's Kevin Godley." And you know, obviously, <laughs> you know, I was a bit pissed. No, no shut, <laughs> shut up, you old git. What are you talking about? But anyway. Um, <laughs> In that one, the POV, POV is the red nose. Do you remember that? And the red nose doesn't right. move, and then everything sort of revolves around the red nose. It can either be somebody's actual nose, or it can be on the end of a stick, or it can yes. be a tennis ball. And it's, again, it's fantastic 
the, the point of view doesn't change. Very creative. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Interesting. And that there are so, so many. Yeah, I've there, there's yeah. the do, um, that do exactly Peter that. Gabriel, Kate Bush one. Don't give ah, up. It's, it's great, just them great revolving round yeah. and round and round, isn't it? You know, yeah. Just very simple. It, it takes it to the absolute limit of like it's really brave to just do something that unchanging, isn't it? Or mm. slowly changing in mm-hmm. that case. Definitely. What's what's the Godly and Cream track? Is it Golden Boy? Uh, and that's got, that's a, some kind of weird revolving. Thing. Oh yeah, yeah. The kind of flat, the, the paper thin heads revolving. Yes, yes. Not sure about uh, them. And that, didn't they film a conventional video and scrapped it and replaced it at the last minute with that? Yeah, that rings a bell. I mean, the the exception that proves the rule is actually my favourite of all the Godly and Cream videos, Charlie, mm-hmm. which is Wide Boy. Oh, God, yeah. With those incredible transitions yeah. where, they, where they freeze frame and cut to a, a paper printout of the previous it's scene. It's so clever, then, that. It's and burst through. I mean, it's unbelievable. White boy sitting in the back row, necking with his girlfriend, going to a go go. White boy really going nowhere, victim of the 60s. Wow, what can we say? That was amazing. Uh, I'm I'm so glad to have been able to to share it with uh, with you and your your listeners because um, it's been hidden away for too long, and 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 it um, it deserves to. Mm-hmm to be aired and um i should just say thanks to lol too for for letting us uh, hear it well yeah absolutely and and what a what a charming and likable fellow he, he clearly Isn't is he? and i i, I, I yeah. feel very um uh, very happy with his the the way his his life has gone he doesn't seem to have any kind of uh bitterness or regrets you know i think he's he's just as he said towards the end there he's sort of achieved all everything he wanted to do he's had a great time doing it it was never about the money he made a great living but it was never about that it's it's lovely to meet someone who's who's very you know he's, he's just had a life well lived beautifully put he does seem at peace doesn't mm-hmm. he with everything he's he's ever done with the with the successes and the failures yeah yeah i think so which is quite rare you know there's you meet a lot of musicians and quite often there is some sort of residual ill feeling about you know something someone said or or they they weren't um they didn't get their just rewards or they weren't given enough credit for this that and the other Mm. yeah Uh, Lod doesn't seem to have any of those sort of feelings at all he just just all he remembers is the good times 10cc are a kind of a microcosm of a wider look at society i suppose in a way aren't they this each of the i mean the the four of them like any four people i suppose who were involved in an incredible creative endeavor have come out the other side quite differently Mm. but i suppose that's to be expected yes yeah the four characters in a movie yeah four elements our friends in the north you know that kind of yeah kind of dynamic earth air fire and water there we go. There we go. Um, yeah, we, we'd love to follow in your footsteps, Charlie, and, and, and meet with, with Mr. Cream at some point. And if you could see way clear, we'd love you to put a little word in for us, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, not, not a problem. I, I, I think I might next hook up with him later in the, in the summer. Um, he's back on the road with the um, Trevor Horn band. Yeah, um, great. I know I'd, that, I'd love to see yeah, him Yeah, they're time. great. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I might catch up with them at some point during the summer. So when I next see him, I'll um, I'll put in a word. 
Thank you, thank you, and uh, thank you. Reassure him that we'll be gentle with him. We won't be asking, you know, what, what setting the gizmo was on <laughs> for that track, or you know, anything that ridiculous. But we'd just love to to chew the fat with him. Sure. Yeah. No. I, I, and he's, he's he's a great person to chew fat with. <laughs> <laughs> Take care and hope your back gets better. Thanks so much. It's yeah. been a real pleasure, guys. You've been listening to The Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening. I've certainly never regretted it. Uh, for a minute, you know, I was, I've been very blessed and lucky in that everything that I've gone on to do since, I've been able to fulfil myself and also make a living, thank God, you know. Um, and I've gone on to do, fulfil all kinds, in fact, every ambition I've ever had, I've, I've been able to, and I had a lot of them. I had ambitions to make pictures and do film and, and do all sorts of daft little things. I was able to do that. So... I have no regrets about that. I just regret the fact that it 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 caused a rift between us, which certainly in the case of me and my because I was married, you know, to my wife Ange and Gloria, Eric's wife, are sisters. So it caused a terrible kind of rift in the family, which I it was awful. But I couldn't see any way around it, to be honest, um, and. And yet, be true to what I, my instincts was saying. Um, I, I couldn't help it. So there I am, and you know, my me and Eric got on for the past, you know, twenty twenty five years. Time is a big healer, and um, it, you know, I have a marvelous relationship. My family is, you know, the closest. You know, my family is very close. My ex- big family, my expanded family. So that's been fine. It's all turned out. Everything has turned out fine. Kevin eventually went, wanted to go his way. He, I never dreamt. That's the split I wasn't ready for. I have to be honest. I was completely gobsmacked. We did our 25th anniversary. And then Kevin said, well, you know, I think it's time for us to actually go our separate ways. And I was, <clears throat> I was ready for another 25 years. <laughs> I would have been ready for the next blast. But, you know, he needed to move on from me. And I... God, you know, I can't blame him to be lumbered with me for 25 years. It took some doing, probably. So, you know, God bless him and keep him.